Promo Kitchen is a nonprofit organization committed to the advancement of the promotional products industry through education and mentorship. If you want to get more involved, visit us on the web at promokitchen.org. This episode of the Promo Kitchen podcast has been sponsored by smarteqp.com. SmartEQP.com gives independent distributors three competitive advantages. End quantity pricing from more than 90 of the top promotional product supplier lines, quality connections from some of the brightest minds in the industry, and cutting-edge training from top secrets of promotional product sales. To give yourself an unrivaled combination of EQP buying power, quality connections, and cutting-edge training, visit www.SmartEQP.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Promo Kitchen Podcast. We are a community-inspired conversation featuring guest suppliers, distributors, and service providers discussing insights into the $20 billion promotional products business. My name is Mark Graham, co-founder of Common Skew, and I'm joined by my good friend and fellow chef, Robert Fiveash, president of Brand Fuel. In today's podcast, we get the chance to speak with the CEO of one of the industry's largest and most recognized supplier brands, Jeff Letterer of Primeline. Jeff is no stranger to this business, having worked his way up the prime chain of command for the past 22 years. Jeff joined Prime in 1993 as a regional sales manager and over the years has been a key visionary in helping shape the organization in areas such as product development, new service offerings, and technology innovation. Jeff has traveled extensively throughout the world and represents Prime as the only U.S. member of the IPPAG, the International Partnership for Promotions and Gifts. Jeff has three children and lives in Greenwich, Connecticut with his wife, Wendy. Jeff, welcome to the program, sir. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Yeah, it's great having you here. So I'm fascinated, Jeff. I know that you're in a family business and that your father, Bob, had started Prime many years ago. I'm wondering what it was like growing up in the Letterer household as a kid when you were surrounded by the promotional products business. What was that like? (laughs) Well, before he started Prime in 1980, he was in the industry for 17 years. So I really grew up in the industry, going to industry events. I would travel with my father to different parts of the country while he was doing seminars and working with distributors throughout the country. And I just really had a keen understanding about the industry from day one and, in fact, was one of his first employees, not paid, maybe through my allowance, where his first product that he introduced, I helped stuff the envelopes for a mailer that he did to the industry. So, you know, my impression was that this was a very close-knit industry that this is where his friends were. You know, he would, at all hours of the night, be calling China or talking to a customer on the West Coast, and that's just what I grew up with. It really instilled, for me personally, a work ethic that I still have today. It's working hard, smart, making a lot of friends in this industry, and keeping your friends and competitors, by the way, close, because, you know, it, it is one big community, and I think that still exists today. Yeah. So I'm curious, like, what age are we talking about here? Like, when you said that you were visiting distributors across the country, are you, like, 11 years old and hopping on the airplane with your dad to go visit distributors on the West Coast? Or uh, Yeah, so little... 11 years old. I'm, well, 11 years old, I'm 19, that's 1980, yep. 81. Yep. So, you know, I'm thinking when I was, you know, even before that, I, I remember 
him working in New York City and working with distributors and going to regional association meetings, like the SACNY meetings, and, and they had holiday parties. So I met other children in this industry that are still friends of mine today. Yeah. So I would say that anywhere from eight years old, nine years old, to you know, 10 to 15 years old. Wow. And at what point did you get serious about the industry? I mean, I've got an 11-year-old, I've got a nine-year-old as well as a six-year-old. And they, of course, know what I do, and they come to my office and see all the cool things that are in my showroom. But I wouldn't say that any of them would be able to connect the dots, at least at this age, that they may ever get into this business. And I don't even know whether I'd want them to be in the business. That's a whole other discussion. But I feel the same way. I'm not sure if I want my children in the business just because I want them to find their own path. And if it leads them to this industry or this business, then that's fantastic. So, you know, I've got my oldest kid is 10 years old, my other, I have an eight and a a six-year-old, and I actually like to bring them to the office here. I'd like to put them to work here, but they sit and play on their iPads when they're here, but they have a lot of fun things to play with, whether it's new products that I'm developing or that we're introducing. They enjoy that, so that exposure that they have at this age is interesting because they see what I do, and and it's different than what some of their other friends' fathers do that are either in finance or real estate because they have a tangible product. They always expect me to bring something home. I remember my father bringing something home from all the trade shows all the time. And I'm at the point where my wife tells me to stop bringing things home, but uh, (laughs) I don't always listen to that. (laughs) So, so you're, Uh, you're this 11 year old kid. You're at the office, you're going to distributors with your dad. Take me up to 1993, which is the time that you joined as a regional sales manager and you were in your early twenties at that point. At what point did you know you wanted to be in the business as opposed to just this casual bystander that was reviewing cool new samples that your dad would bring back from his factories? Yeah, the plan was never for me to work in the business. It's just I I wanted to be in advertising and in an agency. And I I interned in one agency and I I worked for a a point of purchase advertising firm out of college that displayed LED signs over supermarkets. I created the ads that went on those signs just when the internet was really coming out. I hate to date myself here, but I don't even know if Netscape was out at the time. So I would create the ads that went on those signs, and I I realized after about a year and a half at that company, my first real job out of college, I wanted to get into sales, and there was an opportunity at Prime at the time to get into sales. And and after a lot of talks back and forth with my father, uh, I realized that if I decided to go in a different direction and not go to prime, I might regret it one day. And so let me give it a try. Let me, there was an opening for sales. Let me go in to try my hat at sales and see how I do. I, I always thought I was a pretty persistent kid, pretty knowledgeable and, and personable. And, and so I did it. And I, I joined the company and I started in customer service as a training ground for about six months. It was the hardest thing I've ever done at the time. It was just really a great learning and, and proving ground in the industry. And I Went into sales, and I, I, I did really well with it, and I, I made a lot of relationships that I still have today. I mean, people still remember the first day that I came in, and I, and I actually was probably one of the first people ever to turn out the lights in a presentation and, and run a PowerPoint for people, because that's the, the business that I came from, is presenting, advertising, and creating ads. So that's what I did day one. I, I really took the knowledge that I had from college, you know, my marketing and communication background and, and my first job out of college and, and threw myself into really building up a sales territory like any salesperson might do. And then I took that and, and started working and, and building another territory in the Southeast, tripling the business in, in the first couple of years because people wanted 
to work with someone who they really appreciated and who knew the business and who had a vested interest in helping them build their business. And really, those are the first few years of, of my trajectory into this industry. And, and I really haven't looked back. It's just amazing because day one, I was always thinking, well, if I didn't go in this business, what would I be doing? And and what would have happened? And, and so uh, I've really found out that, that I had a knack for it, and, and it really uh, was my calling. That is fantastic, Jeff. Thank you for that background. So you are justifiably proud of being awarded ASI's Family Business of the Year a couple months ago. Congratulations. Thank you. And when we were talking about next podcast, one of the things that intrigued us about you was the fact that you've got this fantastically relevant perspective on the industry and on family businesses because of your situation. And, and it's relevant to thousands of small businesses in our industry, whether they're suppliers or distributors. So that was a key reason we wanted to chat with you. And so for just a few minutes, give us maybe your perspective, the transition from one generation to the next, whether it's ownership or leadership. And let's kind of get into a couple of the key practical things that are related to that, whether it's taxes. You hear these horror stories of family farms having to be disrupted because of estate taxes and things like that. Give us a sense for how that transition worked with you all and what sort of tips or tricks you might have for some of the other folks out there in the industry that are experienced that type of transition. With Prime, we're not that dissimilar to the thousands of other family businesses, especially in this industry, and we'd like to consider ourselves a, a small business. We may be larger in this industry, but in general, we're small, relatively speaking, and we understand how business is run. We understand the importance of making it happen for a distributor who's either in a family business or it is their own business. So we don't have a lot of layers here, and that's a, an important thing. But getting to your specific question, day one, I treated this like any other job, not like it was my family's business. I made sure that day one it was calling my father Bob versus dad in the hallways, and when people referred to him, it was not your father this or your dad this, but calling him by his first name because we're colleagues. So I, I set the trend early on that this was a, a business that I was intending to get into, and that that's all it was. It wasn't a family business. I knew it was, and clearly it is, but throughout time, I only try to take the business perspective on things and make a business case for things. Because if you bring family and emotion, that's where things, I think, break down. And it's communicating and, and also respecting, at the time, the chain of command. I mean, I wasn't coming in as some righteous kid. I came in that this is a business I have to conduct and I have to do it well. Hmm. And I never thought of myself taken advantage of or in any way acted any other way than I've got a job to do, I'm going to kick ass doing it, and I'm going to lead by example. And that's served me well and it served my family well. And the trajectory of the different roles that I've played here at Prime, I feel and I've been told that it's been very organic. The things that I did in this industry were things that I asked for. Things that I did in this company, I did because I thought they were the right things to do, and there were things that I identified to do, whether it was creating one of the industry's first websites or introducing a set of products that no one else has done in, in the past. These are things that I thought were the right thing to build a business that I made real business cases to do, and I took emotion out of it. And so did my father, by the way. We tried to be very 
focused on what was right for the business first. Yeah. And I think that's really that really helped us navigate the early years of working together, and we kept that together through the time until my father wasn't involved in the business. Very good. Jeff, I think that's an interesting segue in terms of your father not being involved in the business from a day-to-day perspective. I know that one of your more public hires over the last several years has been hiring a president or a professional manager, so to speak, in Rick Brenner. And Rick is a friend to many in the industry and a, a great guy and I think has played a key role within your organization. What advice would you have for other suppliers or distributors that are considering bringing in professional management to help them get to the next level. I think that's really what I see in Rick's role and someone coming outside the business and then really bringing an outside perspective. And I know that's something that a lot of suppliers and distributors, particularly smaller ones, struggle with because they don't want to hand over the reins to someone else. And kudos to Prime for making that bold decision. Is there some advice or some experiences that you can share about that whole decision process? So this happened 13, 14 years ago, and when we hired Rick, we were trying to hire someone that could build another level of professionalism within the organization to increase our profit levels and to help shore up some of the foundation that we needed at the time, and he was great at that. We worked together on lots of things to develop the company to where it is today. So the message I have is surround yourself with smart people and don't feel like you can do everything. And and I've always felt that if either I surround myself with smart people that can do things that aren't my core competency, whether it's Rick or any of our other management team, that's how we're going to succeed the most because one person can't do everything. Mm. And I think where some people go wrong is they feel that if they hire smart people in, in certain roles, that that says something about what they can or can't do. And Rick was emblematic at the time when we did this to be a person that can bring outside experience that could bring prime to another level with our management structure at the time and our profitability at the time as we were going through explosive growth when he came on board. And this was at a time right around 2000, I don't know what year it was, 2001 or two. That's really when the world was changing. And we wanted to bring in someone to make sure that we were focusing on the future. And that's always what I'm trying to do is focus on the future to make sure Prime is as relevant today as it was five years ago and five years from now. So, Jeff, let's talk about brands for a minute. You've got probably, what, 15 to 20 different distinct brands in your stable at Prime. It's very impressive, very uh, strong group of, of different companies that are represented everything ranging from Rubik's to Energizer, which is exciting, and then your own brands that you've acquired over the years, Lehman, Points of Light, and some other ones. I want to talk for a minute about those licensing agreements and kind of what percentage of sales you get through those types of orders. I think we're curious if clients, the distributors, and ultimately the end users, are they willing to pay a bit more? Are you finding they're willing to pay a bit more for those recognizable brands? I mean, if you add up all of our house brands and the external brands, it's a, a decent chunk of our business. But Energizer and Built and some of these other retail brands, Rubik's, people are willing to pay more, but it can't be that much higher than what you would pay for a generic version of that same product. And we do feel that distributors are willing to do that, but we also think it rounds out the line and it makes it for a better shopping experience for distributors and hopefully end users when they have choices. I think the good, better, best model 
is a way to look at it. So we have good items, we have better items, and best, I guess, would be sort of the brand side of things. And I think that they like that. I think that there's lots of precedent in the industry for companies that have many more brands than Prime does, but I think we have a good rounded selection, and you're certainly going to see more of that in the years to come. So probably slightly lower margins on your end on the licensed products, but it gets people in the door. Definitely lower margins. And that being said, I'm pretty focused on making sure that we can do deals with these brands where our margins aren't eroded, where they're not going to find a $10 generic item or a $10 branded item and choose the branded item, and that just erodes our margins. So we're trying to do things in a smart way where the selection and the pricing and the deals we come up with are win-win for us as, as a company because we need to operate at a certain profit efficiency and, and also for the distributor where it's a benefit to them to get a product with a fair price. Got it. And where have you seen the most success building a brand internally rather than Lehman or Points of Light or one that already existed? Have you found much success building one from scratch internally and how do you market those differently? I mean, I think a good example is when we purchased the Points of Light brand, we converted it into something called the Fun Zone which is a really fun grouping of products. And we combine a lot of the existing fun items from Prime to the fun items from Points of Light and created a zone where distributors and end users on our website could find items that put a smile on their face that were cute, that were funny, but also could get a message across. We started that last January at the PPI show. We had people wearing sort of mop topper wigs, this microfiber wig, and we had a picture booth with a mop topper where you put your face through, and we, we created a, a fun experience around it. I think that would be a perfect example of how you can create an experiential situation in, in this industry that drives people to find a product that's fun, that conveys a message, and the, the fun zone, I think, really does that. We've done the same thing with the Lehman brand on the opposite end of the spectrum from a low-end fun with the fun zone. Lehman is a, is a higher-end range of either portfolios or books or leather or high-end PU material that we've been able to really build in, in a way that when people hear the Lehman brand by Prime, they're thinking really high-end, good quality, but really competitive pricing. And, and I think that's you know, both ends of the spectrum, fun and then high-end with Lehman. Most of those brands seem to really resonate with people, and I think we just have a real knack at understanding what's going to work for the distributor and helping them sell to the end users and having the right tools in place and the brands in place to motivate them to, to use our line more. Jeff, when it comes to expansion of your categories, and we've spent a lot of time talking about how you've got into these different branded lines as well as through the acquisitions, one area that you don't have any presence in right now is in apparel. And of course, mm -hmm. uh, Polyconcept had turned some heads a couple of years ago when they made the acquisition of Trimark to get into the apparel side. And now, of course, they're able to say we are a true one-stop shop in every single category within the industry, or every single major category within the industry. Do you think that that is the start of a trend that you see Prime also jumping into. I should also note that Hit got into apparel maybe on a smaller level than Trimark and Polyconcept, but I, I think it's interesting, and I'm wondering whether we'll see more of that in the next three to five years. Well, you see that with Hit, you see that with Jetline, you see that with Polyconcepts, and I absolutely think there's a trend. There's pressure to do that, and there's pressure to continue to expand your product offerings. And for us, we have to remain focused. We are a privately held company. We're not owned by a private equity company. We need to make sure that we're strong and vibrant. 
and to all of a sudden introduce a major wearables category right now, it, it would take our eye off the ball. And I can't say that it wouldn't happen in six months or a year or two years or five years. But right now, we want to make sure that we're the strongest prime that we can be yep. and stay focused. But there's yep. absolutely pressure because you want to be all things to these distributors. And the fastest way to grow in this industry is adding a new product category or acquiring yep. another company. And, and it requires cash. It requires know-how. And it requires focus. Yep. And also, some of the best decisions are the decisions not to do something. Yep. And we are trying to make the best decisions we can at Prime. And wearables is not on the immediate future for us, but certainly we see what other companies are doing, and, and we'd be foolish not to consider and just model out things. But right now, there's no imminent focus on adding wearables. Yep. We want to continue doing what we're doing and doing it the best way. There's pressure you know, with electronics, electronic items, the compliance of those items. And those items are more expensive than a little plastic widget. You have to invest dollars in inventory. Mm. You can't just offer a whole range of items and not be able to fulfill them. And you don't want to be able to sell from an empty cart. And our model has always been, if we're going to introduce an item and we're going to have a range, we're going to have tons of inventory and we're going to be able to service customers. And if we all of a sudden go into areas that, number one, we don't know a lot about, number two, that take up a lot of warehouse space with wearables, if we don't know a lot about that, then it's going to take our focus away. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's my initial perspective on it. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot to be said for that focus. I remember in another Promo Kitchen podcast that we had almost a year ago, we were talking with Marty Lott at Sanmar. And I know that whether we had posed the question or whether this was a question that you'd answered from someone else about whether they would ever get into the decorating business. And the answer, at least at the time, was an emphatic no. And the answer was because of focus. So this isn't a conversation about Sanmar, but I think it's interesting that when you look at various market leaders throughout the industry, what usually unites them is the focus that they have on their core business and how disciplined they are on sticking with that as opposed to venturing into other things just because it's a bright, shiny object. So good on you for that. Yep, yep. Thanks. We get pressure, right? So our salespeople and our customers and everyone you know, gives you feedback. And it's hard to say, where am I going to put my dollars? How am I going to spend our cash wisely in order to make us the most successful? And and so it's just making decisions. Sometimes yeah. it's making a decision, and sometimes it's making a decision not to do something. Yeah. That's part of what I do day in and day out, to figure out how to make Prime the most competitive yeah. company in a competitive landscape. Yeah. So I, I wanted to shift gears with a question about technology and specifically around Prime's website. I know that you're in the process right now of redesigning the site and are close to launching something new in the next little while. Are you at liberty to talk a little bit about what customers should expect with the website in terms of functionality and how you think that it will help propel your business forward and extend the relationship you have with your existing customers? Definitely. So here's a scoop. The launch of our new site supposedly, officially, is the soft launch, I think, is in a matter of two days. And the public launch is scheduled in early December. It's been a long time coming. We've scheduled at different points, different launch times, but didn't want to go live until we felt comfortable with it. Yep. There's robust search on it in a much more dynamic way than our existing site. We have focused on building from the ground up this entire new website that would have every feature you can imagine from checking inventory live to checking your order status to checking your art on orders, creating sales presentations, ways to contact customer service, 
an intuitive idea search that we created, which I, I'm real proud of. Basically, it allows you in, in an interesting real-world way say that I'm looking for a particular item in a certain price point, industry, category, and application, and have it presented in a graphical way that would be the same way that someone would call a customer service person and ask them for ideas, and then those search results come up. So it's a really cool intuitive idea search, as we're calling it. So it has lots of tools from being able to store client details if they'd like, to storing artwork, to connecting our product and our product data and images into their site, creating blind versions of our site, and having all the graphics that anyone would need to add to their website, whether it's images that are, are blank or different sizes or videos, anything and everything we've thrown at this to try to make it as easy as possible for a distributor to have an enhanced experience when they're working with Prime in a pretty nice graphical way. So we're pretty proud of the site. The site is never done. Phase two starts after next week because once we have phase one done, phase two immediately starts because we want to continue to add new features to the site as the case might be. I'm pretty stoked about it and it's been a long time coming and I'm sure some distributors who weren't totally in love with our site are breathing a sigh of relief after hearing this right now. And they've critiqued our site for the last year or two, and I think it's been rightly so, and it's, it's a long time coming. In 1995, 1994, I think I was the first person that introduced a website to the industry, or at least one of the first people. So it's been a passion of mine to make sure that we have the most up-to-date site, and, and I think in the last couple of years, we really have dropped the ball on that, and I'm, I'm psyched that we're, we're changing that course in a matter of days here. Great. So along those lines, Jeff, exciting stuff. You've mentioned in the past that you see some of the friction between suppliers and distributors on the sort of order entry processing side lessening in the future, whether it's EDI or XML or some other technology that reduces that friction. Any things that we'll want to know about the new website that address that, or is, is that a different It's story? not just on the new website. So friction, certainly. I mean, we want to reduce any friction that it takes from a distributor finding out any information that they need to find out about any of our products, our services, their orders, their information. We have alerts that are pushing things out to distributor, pushing a, a data and order information out to distributors from the time that we get the email from a customer or the time we get a handshake from a, a customer who's automatically connected into our system to the time that the order goes through the different points through our production process to the time that it gets shipped to the time that the invoice goes out, we're pushing data out to customers. We're also connecting customers into our system and vice versa. We're, any way that we can work with a distributor to create efficiencies, we already are and will continue to do. We have live XML feeds, we have live data, and you know we're on the forefront of this. There's a lot of good suppliers that can do this, and we're one of them and we hope that we're on the cutting edge with it, too. Got it. So there are terms out there that we hear about, and not all of us know exactly what they mean, but we hear promo standards and things like that, and we, we kind of wonder what that initiative means and who are players in it, both on the, I, I guess, mostly on the supplier side, but also on the distributor side. You know, ASI and Sage have an enormous amount of power in this industry, but you have to wonder, at least from our perspective on the distributor side, is there really that need for that intermediary in there? You know, you all have the relationship with us as the distributors, and is there the necessity to 
have that intermediary in there? And, and what are some of the pressures and reasons why that exists today? Obviously, you get traffic from that, but what are some of the reasons why that may not be the way it is in the future? Right, so if we could separate what their functions are, obviously they're publishers of data. So if it's just product data and search, that's one aspect and service that they offer. So if I think there's clearly a need for distributors to have a research tool, whether it's a tool that they pay for with ESP or Sage or any of the others that might exist, or maybe it's a, a new service from Google that's created where people can search and find what they need. So there's that one piece. So I think it's a necessary evil today, working with ESP and Sage, the two big ones. I don't love the fact that that's how distributors find their information and rely on finding that that data there because it gives us less control of the message and the differentiating factors of our products, but that's the fact of life. And if you find a way to embrace that, which we've tried and continue to try to do, and making sure that our products have the right keywords and search within those two search engines, then there's the product data, making sure that it's one version of the truth, whether it's on our website, whether it's our catalog, whether it's the data that's on Sage or distributor's website or ESP site. I think one version of the truth is really important. One product feed, whether it's through promo standards or it's a product feed that we propagate out to the industry, to have to update so many different engines with our product images and data can be cumbersome. And while it's more streamlined than it's ever been, it's still a bit cumbersome. And then you have the middle platform with order status and inventory and invoicing. And I am not a big fan of any company coming in the way between the distributor and the supplier with that, whether it's a service that Sage or, or ASI or anyone else offers in terms of being a middle platform for communicating order information. I would prefer to do what we're doing, working with the promo standards or providing our XML feeds or, or various other middle layers that we work with directly with the distributor or group of distributors to communicate that piece. I don't like commoditizing the order status and order receiving part of the, the process. And is that, Jeff, because of a concern about the information getting to you incorrectly, or is it for another reason? I, I think it's a combination of things. Certainly, there's no one standard way that any one supplier or distributor works. So right. to have a platform that's completely standardized homogenizes everybody, and I'm not a fan of that. The other side is that I don't know what's going to happen in the future, and I wouldn't want to be reliant. I think that's probably my overriding concern. I don't want to be reliant on getting business from a third party when we're trying to reduce the friction, but adding a, a middle layer into that for a transaction, I think just creates more complexity that is unnecessary in this industry. You know, Jeff, listening to what you're saying now, I certainly think that there's a big trend with suppliers today where you're seeing the suppliers that are investing heavily in their technology infrastructure, whether that's their front-end website or whether it's in some of their back-end services like XML feeds or online order entry or online presentations, whatever the case may be. I make that point because if you look back, say, five years ago, a handful of suppliers would have been doing that. Ten years ago, no one would have been doing that. And they would have right. principally been relying upon third-party services like ASI and Sage for those types of services, whether you like it or not. Mm -hmm. As right. you look out as a supplier in the next five or ten years, what do you see 
of the SAGE and ASI model, how do you see them evolving in light of the fact that many suppliers are now starting to take more control into their own hands from a search presentation and order management perspective? What, what role do they play in the next five or 10 years? Well, well first of all, there's also another line here, uh, grouping of providers. You have the Facilis groups, you know, technology provider, you have Common SKU, you have Boundless. There's organizations that are aggregating, you know, I guess I promote you, like there's industry aggregators that have a technology platform that are endeavoring to be that middle service provider and service layer. So I'd be remiss if I didn't mention those as well beyond ASI, SAGE, and that sort of thing. I think that, again, if we separate the search functionality from the order transaction piece, there are two separate components. And I think that there are lots of ways for distributors to search for products, and I think the more the merrier. It makes our life a little bit more complex, and if we can unify the data as one version of the truth, wherever the distributor can find that data, I'm fine with that. Yeah. And we just then have to do a, a good job of aligning ourselves with those service providers that provide that search functionality to the distributor and embrace the ecosystem together. And if we can cut the layers and work directly with the distributor on that because they have their own functionality, like a, a, let's say a Facilis, as an example, has some technology for search. Maybe they've integrated also with an ASI. So the more we know about our customers and what's their preferred way to find data, the more that we can cater and customize and have the flexibility to customize what we provide to distributors. Yeah, yeah, interesting stuff. Yep. So, Jeff, kind of an odd question here. So if I were to start my own business today, if I were to start a sales business today, many key things that I would iron out, obviously, what's my product, got to talk about marketing, who am I hiring for my leadership, et cetera. But the primary thing that I would need if I've got a sales business is visibility into my sales force. And in our industry, we are your sales force, yet you have very little visibility into how we're doing our job. And that's just strange. You know, that's, that's kind of odd. And so I think the question is, you know, if you could know more about our sales force, um, what would you want to know? And if you got that information, how would it change how you do your business? That's a fantastic question. And first of all, the way we find out about your business in a lot of ways is through our sales force. So we're fortunate enough to have a, a fairly large sales force that calls on the distributors in all the major markets, or all the markets really, in the, in the states. And we gather information from that. But it's one step removed from if we had a platform that we knew what projects your salespeople are working on, who their customers are, the frequency of orders, the product categories that are, are being ordered. If we had a mechanism to understand that, then we could service you in a much more comprehensive and smart way as opposed to sort of the guesswork. Because you are absolutely right. You are our sales force. The distributors are our sales force. We rely on you guys completely to get those orders. Our salespeople aren't really in sales. They're motivators to try to motivate you and your team to work with us and gather information. And you're doing the hard work by going out and trying to close that business. And we as a supplier need to be used more as a tool and as a partner and the more information that we know about you, your customers, and your go-to-market, the more we can put the products and services that are more focused to those that are more progressive 
that would have that mindset for openness when working with a supplier. Right. Having some sort of a CRM tool that certain suppliers, let's say a preferred network of suppliers, are on that can be part of the process, part of the ideation, part of the, the beginning stages of when a distributor is calling on a new customer or knowing how to get deep into their existing customers. I think a unified CRM would be really interesting. You're suggesting a service level provider create that type of product that other suppliers, you all and other suppliers, could jump on to, and you think that would be a way for you to achieve that additional information. So, yeah, uh, I think so. So there's third-party providers right now that have a quoting system, as an example, that a distributor puts in a quote and it goes to 50 other suppliers, and those suppliers get to bid on the product. It's a honed-in version of that. It's more that, hey, we have this project, and we need ideas for that project, and here's the thinking. Here's the end user. Here's how they're using the product, and I would love creative ideas. This is the distributor saying, I'd love some ideas for that. And then we would present ideas in a unified format that allows them to convert that into presenting it to their customers. And then if they want to convert it into a quote, then they convert that into a quote. But it has nothing to do with quoting. It just has to do with ideation and being part of the process from the beginning and being part of the, you know, as a partner from the beginning because it's no different than, you know, if you're running a distributor business, you want to know what your salespeople are up to and you want to understand it at the deepest level and you want to help them with their ideation and make them successful. Mm. We have that same goal. We want to help the distributor salespeople be as successful as we can. And the more we know about what they're doing, how they're trying to achieve it with their end user, the more we can help them with that. You don't think you'd lose some independence or, or feel some some pressure by being a part of that type of an organization? I don't see it as an organization. I just see it as us trying to help a distributor in a more collaborative way. I, I don't see it as anything more than taking the friction out of us. You know, we get involved in a project with a distributor after they've made several sales calls with their customer and they say, well, here's some ideas that I'm working on. If we knew about that, and, and of course we know about that in advance in a lot of cases because the closer you are with the distributor, the more you know that. But by and large, you don't know that as quickly as you would like to. So I just think it makes the distributor and supplier relationship. For those that can have the resources to do that, it makes you a little closer, and it reduces friction in the ideation phase. And I think, Jeff, it's really interesting what you're saying, because ultimately what this gets down to is this a theme that we've seen over the last several years in the industry of, I think, a real genuine desire to have more transparency and more collaboration and more openness across the supply chain. So distributors can be better at what they do, and they can sell more if they've got a supply base that is truly engaged with their business. And at the same time, the same thing with suppliers, that the more open distributors are about the projects they have got on the go or the kind of clients they're working with, then the better a supplier can be so that it's not a waste of time when the supplier shows up and says, so what's new? And of course, distributors, right, right. they don't, don't have time for that. And that's frustrating for the supplier rep when they come back and they report back to you, Jeff, and you're like, hey, what's going on with ABC promotions? Oh, I don't know. Uh, yep. Being good there. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, exactly. And, and so I'm always astounded by, we have all these services we put in place. We have sample kits. We have web services. We have technology. We have creative folks. We have marketing people. We have promotional sheets and flyers. All these success stories, all of these tools, and I'm always surprised when people aren't aware of them. 
as much as they should be. And I'm sure we're not that far different than other suppliers who spend a lot of time and resources to create really great distributor tools to help them succeed. And, and so we have all these tools, and, and certainly we have to do a better job of communicating it however we communicate it to the distributor and the distributor salesperson. But there are so many ways that a distributor can leverage a supplier, and I, I'm surprised that they don't do that yeah. more than, than they should. Yeah. Jeff, just looking at the time here, it's amazing how quickly time has flown by. I'd love to ask you one more question, and then, of course, we'll give you the last word where you can share some tidbits and contact information with the audience. But um, so my, my last question is I'm curious from your vantage point. So you're a 45-year-old CEO. You're in the prime of your career. You work for and represent. No pun lead. intended. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's terrible. That's terrible. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> Edit it out. Yeah, I know exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you think I'd line that up? Um, so, so here you are. You're leading this organization, and you still have many more years in your career. Talk to me in the next five or ten years. So you're 55, Jeff. Are we in a 10 billion dollar industry at that point, or are we in a 40 billion dollar industry, or somewhere in between? What do you think? I think we're probably in a $25 billion industry, $28 billion industry. I think that the way that we define the industry is going to expand. I don't think we count all of Vistaprint's business and all of Cafe Press's business. I think there's going to be new entrants into the industry that are going to expand what we consider this industry. And the small order is just one of those areas that some of these companies are capitalizing on. So I think the, the size of the industry, but I also think the sophistication of the industry is going to change. I think the partnership between key suppliers and key distributors are going to be even tighter. I think the integration is going to be tighter. I think the friction is going to be less with how we do business together. We all need to find a way to take costs out of the system using technology, and we're certainly very focused on that, and finding ways to collaborate closer with distributors. Those are the things that I believe are going to drive the industry. Technology, driving costs out of the system, and collaboration. And I think that alone helps to make this even more stable. I think there's lots going on around us that we have no control over and that we have to embrace and we have to figure out a way with how we fit into that. But at the end of the day, I think the size of the industry is the size of the industry. It's going to be in the $28 billion range, I think, in the next five to ten years. Right. Yeah. So good, reliable, consistent growth. So, Jeff, it pains me to say that we're at the end of our podcast. This was absolutely fascinating. I just, I've actually got a list here of at least 10 other questions that I want to ask you, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll schedule two. for that. But I, I think the audience, for those people that don't know you, Jeff, or for those that want to be reconnected with you, tell people where they can find you, how they can connect with you, and if there's any last sure. words of wisdom that you'd like to share with the Promo Kitchen community. Well, I, I'm thrilled. I've, I've been a big fan of Promo Kitchen from when I first heard about it, I don't know, some five years ago. I don't remember when it started, but I, I, I love embracing new models and, and new groups of folks in this industry, and you really, at Promo Kitchen, made a, a great name and created a nice organization. People can reach me either through LinkedIn or can email me directly at jeff at primeline.com. And I'm more than happy to talk about anything that we address today, anything about Prime, anything about the industry at large, about family business, or just advice about how to conduct business to the extent that that is something that anyone's interested in. I'm thrilled to help anyone in any way, distributor or supplier, 
because I think the healthier our industry is, the better it is for everyone. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for your time and generous spirit. This was wonderful. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks again for listening to this edition of the Promo Kitchen Podcast. If you like what you hear, you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes. And remember, you can always get involved in the Promo Kitchen community by visiting us at promokitchen.org. See you next time.